0: This is Barry Zalma, speaking for Claim School Incorporated with number 22, True Crime Stories of Insurance Fraud, this one, The Jeweler. I present these videos so you can learn how insurance fraud is perpetrated and what is necessary to deter or defeat insurance fraud. The Jeweler was not an intelligent man. He had tried a manufacturing jewelry business 10 years before and failed. After his jewelry business failed, he operated a sandwich shop but stayed near the jewelry business. He located his shop in the basement of a building dedicated to jewelers in Seattle, Washington. He was fairly successful and made an adequate living. He still had stored in the garage of his house his old jewelry tables, some molds, and a large safe. One morning, when business at the sandwich shop was slow, he sat down with a customer to have coffee. They spoke of old times when the jeweler made fine rings. The customer and the jeweler both came from Yerevan in Armenia. They talked about growing up under the shadow of Mount Ararat they talked about the difficulties of surviving the capitalist society of Washington State. The friend was a wholesale diamond dealer. The diamond dealer's sales had dropped 75% during the 2008-2009 recession. As they drank their Greek coffee, they discussed how an acquaintance after a robbery had easily collected half a million dollars from his insurance company. They were surprised that the insurer took his books and records on face value. They knew that their acquaintance operated a cash business whose records were kept only to deceive the United States government. By their third cup of coffee, the jeweler and his friend conceived a method to create instant wealth. Their plan was simple. It would take advantage of the insurer's need to deal fairly and in good faith with its insurers. The jeweler contacted the building owner and obtained a sublease on a 600-square-foot office of a jeweler who had just filed bankruptcy. He moved into that office, his jewelry bench, a bottle of oxygen, a bottle of acetylene, and his safe. He purchased 100 grams of gold shot used in the manufacturing process and took on consignment five carats of various sizes and shapes of diamonds, from his friend. He then invited an insurance broker to his office to write a jeweler's block policy with limits of one million dollars. He was ready to show the broker if asked the five carats of diamonds in the gold shop. He also had the inventory from the business that failed. To substantiate the limits of insurance he was requesting he copied the old inventory with modern values. The insurance business, like all others during the recession, was slow. The broker wasted no time thumbing through the insured's records at his place of business. Since he needed to sell the insurance to help cover his payroll, the broker did not look carefully at the store. He sat down on the single bare chair in the insured's office and filled out with the insured the proposal form, an application for jeweler's block insurance. He accepted the jeweler's word that this was a new business and that he had pledges from friends and relatives of stock and materials valued at over $1 million. He did not question the jeweler's statement that he had orders from various retailers for jewelry he intended to manufacture. He informed the broker that he had 20 years' experience in the jewelry industry. He told the broker he had never had a loss, nor had he ever been canceled by any insurer. He showed the broker his safe, his alarm system, and the videotape recorder that recorded the entry of every person into the premises. The jeweler impressed the broker. He did not ask to see the insurance inventory, nor the jewelry, the diamonds or the gold that would be used in the manufacturing process. He merely filled out the form and submitted it to the insurers, He believed would accept the jewelers block risk. On the face of the proposal the risk was excellent. The broker obtained insurance for the limits requested. The insured financed his premium and therefore paid only 20 percent of the total premium. The insured prepared a physical inventory form describing jewelry and raw materials valued at more than 1 million dollars. Went to his shop every day waiting for the delivery of the policy. On the day the policy was delivered, the jeweler, confident that he was insured, met with his acquaintance to plan the presentation of a claim. First, they returned all the loose diamonds to the various wholesale jewelers. He kept, however, the consignment agreement so that his records established the existence in his shop of gems. That he had in fact returned to their rightful owners. The acquaintance and co-conspirator tied the jeweler's hands and feet to his chair, closed the door, and calmly left the building. At five that afternoon the jeweler's sister, who continued to operate the sandwich shop for him, became concerned when he didn't come downstairs to take her home. She went up to the jewelry shop and found the jeweler tied to his chair. She released him and immediately called the police. The insured reported a robbery. He asked about the videotape recorder. The insured reported that it was working. The robber pulled the tape out of the machine and took it with him. He described the robber as a six-foot-two black man wearing a stocking mask with no distinguishing features. The black man had forced him to open the safe and empty all of his stock and materials for manufacturing out of the safe. All that remained were two or three findings, that's clasps and hooks, and three grams of gold shot. The jeweler was exceedingly calm, although he Reported his hands had been tied for many hours, the investigating police officer noted no rope burns in the indentations left by the rope. He told the police that the black man had visited twice before with a special order, and that the insured had made a special design drawing just for him. The thief took the drawing with him. Because he had been there before and appeared ready to make a special order for a large piece, the insured had no qualms about letting him in the shop on the morning of the theft. The insurer assigned an adjuster to investigate the loss. The adjuster, highly experienced in jewelry losses, was immediately suspicious. Although the shop was supposedly that of a manufacturing jeweler, its physical appearance proved otherwise. The jeweler's bench was clean. There were no marks of actual work having been performed on it. There were no materials left on the jewelry bench. There were no scars or torch marks indicating that the table had been in use. The oxygen and acetylene bottles, although located in the shop, were empty. The shop contained only the most minimal of tools necessary for a jewelry manufacturer. He questioned the jeweler carefully. He took an extensive recorded statement. He hired accountants who audited the insured's books and records. The jeweler had prepared well. The books were good. Most of the value claimed stolen was reported by the insured to have come from his own business, jewelry that he had held in hopes of starting business again. He advised the adjuster that as soon as he started his new business, he prepared a complete inventory of the jewelry that he brought with him from his old business. He explained he had made sure that his broker delivered a copy of the inventory and the values listed to the insurer so they could approve it. The adjuster confirmed with the insurer that they had accepted the inventory based on the representations of the insured. The adjuster visited the broker. He took a recorded statement. And the adjuster learned that the broker had never seen the jewelry that was the subject of the insurance. The insurer, acting with the utmost of good faith, accepted the insured's word. The insured's broker, acting with the same good faith, accepted the insured's word. No one inspected the premises to verify the statements of the insured. The adjuster advised his client, the insurer, of his suspicions. The adjuster further advised the insurer there was little it could do to defeat the claim. He knew, in his gut, that the claim was a fraud. But a gut feeling is not evidence. Many indicators of a fraudulent claim were present. One, the policy was new. Two, the insured had not yet paid the first payment on his premium financing contract. Three, no independent person saw the jewelry inventory. Four, the business did not appear to be active. Five, its sales records were minimal. Six, the place was clean. Seven, there was no sign of actual manufacturing. Eight, a manufacturing jeweler never keeps an inventory of his finished jewelry. 9. There's no need for a manufacturing jeweler to have an extensive inventory. 10. All other jewelry in the shop was consignment jewelry. 12. The insured opened a new jewelry business with a $1 million inventory on a cash investment of less than $10,000. The adjuster suggested that the insurer obtain the advice of counsel. It did so. Counsel advised that although the testimony and opinion of an experienced adjuster carried some weight, and indicators of fraud did exist, there was no documentary evidence of fraud. In fact, the documents accepted by the insurer were evidence of an actual loss. There was no witness who could confirm the loss did not occur. Counsel advised that if the insurer on such weak circumstantial evidence denied coverage to the insured, it would face a lawsuit from the insured seeking both compensatory and exemplary damages. It would be almost impossible to defend such a lawsuit. Counsel suggested that the insurer attempt to negotiate a compromise with the insured. His experience like that of the adjuster and the insurer was that people intent on fraud are always willing to compromise. Speed is better than a long lawsuit, even if the lawsuit will pay off greatly. The insurer instructed their adjuster to try such a compromise. With the skills created by 20 years of experience in the adjusting trade. The adjuster convinced the insured that settlement would be preferable to litigation. The insured, knowing his entire claim was fraudulent and not knowing how good the adjuster's sources of information were, allowed the adjuster to propose a settlement. Eventually, the $1 million claim settled for a total payment by the insurer of $750,000. The insurer saved $250,000. The insured got $750,000, more than he had lost, and eventually netted $740,000 for his $10,000 investment. He had no reason to refuse to sign a general release. Of course, when he agreed, The insurer and its adjuster were convinced that they were victims of a fraud they would never and could never prove. The adjuster was convinced the claim was fraudulent because, in his experience, no legitimate insured suffering a million-dollar loss would agree to reduce his claim by 25%. Such knowledge, of course, was not comforting, nor could it be presented in evidence to any court. Fraud succeeded. This video was adapted from my book, Insurance Fraud Costs Everyone, which is available as both a Kindle book and a paperback from Amazon.com. Thank you for your attention.